Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Piecework, and Handwoven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Ann Marrow. My guest is Keith Recker. The new edition of his book, True Colors, is out now from Thrums Books, profiling 26 natural dyers from around the world. His previous book, The 20th Century in Color, was a collaboration with Pantone that traces how the palette of the 1900s reflected its events and culture. Keith's background in color and textiles comes partly from a commercial perspective. He's worked as a buyer for home decor companies and has served as a color consultant for Pantone and others. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to talk to you. Thanks. I've been sort of following your adventures for years because even before this current book, True Colors, Mm -hmm. you've been involved with the Santa Fe art market and you've also been involved with Hand Eye, which is a beautiful publication. Thank you. Yeah, my craft journey has been, I think it's 30 years this year that uh, I was launched into this kind of, you know, crazy half retail, half craft development, half art history melange of God gorgeous life. And so, of course, being a textile person, I know you mostly for true colors and the the textiles part of hand eye, but there's, there's more to it than all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I first uh, walked into this life in craft uh, by meeting a woman named uh, Claire Smith, who was head of aid artisans for quite a long time. And uh, I was, just entering my retail career. I ended up being a vice president of home furnishings at Saks, Gumps, Bloomingdale's. And Claire really took me under her wing and showed me that there was more than saleability to product. There was people, there was narrative, there was culture, there was history, there was technique, and there were, gosh, a host, there was a host of things better, deeper, and more worth pursuing than what was at the surface of my retail life. It changed my whole life. That's wonderful. It's it's a really interesting connection to think about um, working in a sort of a, a big store where, that caters to a whole variety of different people, but also using that to connect you to where all of these places are from. I don't think a lot of people who shop at, you know, Saks think about uh, in a in a really other than what's written on the tag in a really profound way about where the items come from. I think that's true. Uh, certainly back in the, in the late nineties, uh, mid early nineties, when, um, you know, I started this bifurcated journey that was absolutely not happening. Right. We were really at the beginning of a re-exploration of what had been so valuable in the seventies, right. The sixties and seventies, the backstory, the people, the cultural, the notion, the culture, the notion of, a more open funnel for the world's cultures and how they could become part of our lives. So this was right. The next wave uh, starting to happen in the early nineties. I would say if you compared uh, general customer awareness today with what we experienced 30 years ago, you'd find that some needles have been moved. Some people are aware of the conditions under which things are made. Some people are aware of the environmental impact of how they're made. Others are aware of the fragility of this weird disposable economy we've developed, right? With 80% of everything we buy ending up in a landfill within a year on the, on, in the clothing world. Um, and some people, some people 
are acknowledging the value of a cultural backstory, um, history, you know, that kind of thing. So, so awareness is better. We have some ways to go, though, right? The fact that we still have a multi-billion dollar garbage fashion industry commanding so much consumer mind and dollar, uh, right? That shows us how much further we have to go. So you mentioned moving the needle, which is actually kind of an interesting transition because you got to know people who are actually moving needles through cloth. It's true. It's true. Some of my uh, sort of more profound journeys, physical journeys, right? Forget the intellectual part, have been to parts of the world where uh, embroidery is huge, absolutely vital. And, you know, one of them uh, is Uzbekistan. And I have to say, I've been lucky enough to go to Uzbekistan five times. And the first time I went was towards the end of 1999. And there wasn't that much tourism going on, right? Because you figure the end of the Soviet Union was 91. Tremendous economic, you know, collapse. And then finally tourism, kind of tourism and craft uh, started to take root. And, uh, my God, some of the most unforgettable textile moments in my whole life happened on that very first trip. Um, the exposure to the different Suzanne traditions, right? the look and meaning of the Buhara tradition based on gardens and notions of plenty and a woman feeding her family. Then there's the Samarkand tradition with these great roundels of blazing suns, which they say reach back to Zoroastrian tradition. Uh, and there's a funny story if you if you'll let me tell it in a minute. And then there's the Tashkent um, version, which also is based in roundels, but with different sense of trim, different things going on around it. There's the Shakrisab Suzane, which is a cross-stitch technique. Uh, there's Tash, there's uh, Tajik Suzane with a whole other set of motifs. And all of it, you know, basically existing in a fairly concise, truncated stitch language. Uh, and yet telling these age-old, tremendously deep historic stories. Um, wow, it was amazing. So on that trip, I'm trying to understand the differences between these traditions, right? And I'm kneeling with a group of women who are showing me what they make, what their grandmothers made, because a lot of the stuff was still sitting in the houses in chests. And as soon as you express interest, oh my God, the education you would get. So there was a Suzanne. I was told that this was a Suzanne that a woman would work on while she was pregnant with a baby. And I noticed that there were only eight sons. And I said, well, why are there only eight sons? It's, you know, pregnancy is a nine-month affair. And the oldest woman looked at me and said, quite brusquely, which had to be translated, but quite brusquely, you think a woman is going to be on her knees embroidering in the ninth month? No, there are eight sons. <laughs> I love it. Right? So <laughs> it's all based in... In that, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> my daughter's favorite story about my encountering, um, you know, needlework and textiles is from a trip to Macedonia. And, and I have to confess <clears throat> that the punchline of the story is me wandering blindly into what turns out to be a horrible obscenity in Macedonian while I was working with a group of elderly crochet artists in the middle of nowhere. And we liked each other so much that they just did everything they could to contain themselves from laughing at me so badly. But it all broke down like a house of cards after the third day of me saying this horrible word, which I had no idea about. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> but it was good. It was, we loved each other so much. We had such mm-hmm. a good trip there. We really did. I was there for 24 weeks over the course of six different trips in 2004. And uh, it was amazing. This just sounds like a dream. Now, just to back up, Uzbekistan, aren't they known for their ikat? Also, yes. Uh, Suzanne is the, right, the embroidery tradition. And ikat is the warp resist technique in Uzbekistan. It's a warp resist technique, um, yeah, which dates back several hundred years at least. Um, there's some great pictures from the early days of photography showing you the absolute splendor of a special occasion outfit um, with ikat on the inside, ikat on the outside, ikat sash, and just an amazing layering of everything that's possible with, uh, with ikat. And just... You know, going through also the, you know, the the work that people bring to the Santa Fe folk art market and all of these traditional costumes, the work that people put into making something beautiful and meaningful, in some cases, you know, it's, it's a, you know, people who are working to have a subsistence living are also working to do the most exquisite handwork. It's really true. On some of those earlier trips to Uzbekistan, it's it's a little bit different now, but not entirely different. Um, we would be driving, you know, from a town to another town through a purely agricultural zone where clearly life was simple, simple houses, more bikes than cars, a few animals in the fields. And you would see particularly the men riding bikes on the road in these floor length, meticulously channel quilted velvet outer coats, chapan, uh, in a beautiful cobalt black, sometimes dark green, uh, little bits of meticulously crafted uh, edging around the sleeves and around the yoke of the garment. It, they looked like they were in uh, walking off of a, a runway in Paris. They were so exquisitely dressed. And you're right. This was all happening, you know, at night, in the winter, in the evenings, the making of these things which were valuable because they represented the skilled work of people within the family. They were revered. This was simply what you put on your back, right, to go outside when it was chilly, end of story. And they were made to last, right? This was made of tough stuff. You could ride your bike in it. You could go out in the rain in it. And it was simply part of your life. It was simply what you wore. And the e-cut stuff was reserved for special occasions, of course, right, when you were trying to impress someone, uh, and that's quite understandable. It's quite uh, a bit of peacockery, right, to walk around in a beautiful e-cut garment. One thing that I learned in some of those early trips was that e-cut was actually forbidden during the Soviet era because it represented uh, archaic ways, right? It represented an old way of things, and it promoted uh, what the Soviets would have called uh, ethnic division. So instead of promoting the one monolithic same Soviet man, it promoted a way of thinking of people as separate. And so people who still practiced ECOT during the Soviet time were often put in jail. And I particularly met a couple of guys who said that their fathers and their uncles were all, all served some jail time for having been discovered to make ECOT. Since the fall of the Soviet empire, ECOT has made this roaring revival. And it's really impressive to see. ECOT is definitely part of the tourists' craft tourism economy, but it's used at home too. Brides have to have a trousseau that includes ecot. When you go to a wedding or a big important dinner, chances are 
two-thirds of the people will have more traditional clothing, certainly more traditional textiles on them uh, than not. It's just boring to show up in a, in a Western business suit without a speck of glamour. It's boring to show up right in a tidy little A-line skirt without a speck of color and interest. So it's really worked its way back into a thing. It's a way to be Uzbek now, today, right, in the wake of all of that uh, kind of legal jockeying and colonial behavior. And that's pretty remarkable within 30 years. Yes, it is. It really is. It's quite notable. Um, Craft holds a special place in the um, often difficult governmental situation in Uzbekistan because it's broadly acknowledged that the tourism economy and the craft economy are hand in hand and that when they're both working, Uzbeks and Uzbekistan is better off. So they're very, it's very, you know, they have a place at the table. They're quite good leaders. They're quite good participants in civil society. And it's a good thing. So we've been talking about the incredibly rich stitching and uh, dyeing and color traditions of just this one particular place. And yet your book, True Colors, covers um, through the lens of natural color textiles across the globe it's true we 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 i profiled 26 uh people 26 groups in 13 countries and you know truth be told if you just look long enough there is always a an amazing textile language unfolding beneath everything right and i think there's a reason for that um when you think about how we spend our days How often, how many minutes a day do we not have a textile next to our body? It's pretty much when you're bathing, right? Because before you have your clothes, after you have your towel. If you go to bed, you have your sheets. You know, otherwise it's your your underwear, it's your shirt, it's your pants, it's your socks. Every single minute of the day, except for maybe those 10 minutes, we're enveloped by textiles. How could we avoid there being this wonderful language around us uh, at every level? Um, of textile making, of historicism, of revivalism, of modern innovation, you know, good, bad, and ugly, right? So, you know, I I love talking about the good, but, you know, tell tell me about the bad and the ugly. (laughs) Well, you could talk about the bad and the ugly probably in two big ways. The first way uh, might be an acknowledgement of how unengaging a lot of the textiles we encounter on a daily basis are. And there's proof of that. 80% 80% of what we buy ends up in a landfill within a year. And that shows you, right, that you're not attached, you're not engaged, you're not invested in these things. They have a short life because they're only valid for a short period of time. They don't look good, they don't wear well, they don't wash well, they wear out, they're of low quality. So I'd say that's one of the two ways. I'd say maybe the other way is almost at the molecular level. If we think about synthetic textiles and synthetic colorants, there's a lot of petrochemicals involved. And maybe the easiest way to explain why I feel like that's part of the ugly side of textiles is to, forgive me, reference quantum physics. In quantum physics, there are no hard boundaries. There are only clouds of probability that you're more likely to be encountering atoms and molecules of one kind over here than you are over here. 
And so when we put petrochemicals, petrochemical molecules next to our skin, we're actually in close proximity to these clouds of matter. And why do I want to have myself in an envelope of petrochemical molecules throughout my day? I, I'm not so sure that I do. I'm not so sure that clouds of petrochemical molecules are doing me any good. They're only doing good for the people who collect margin in the making and selling of these not so great things. So uh, one of the people in the book that I was most enthusiastic about uh, was a woman named Audrey Louise Reynolds, who's experimenting quite a lot with dyeing with turmeric. Right? And turmeric is this ancient Ayurvedic anti-inflammatory. It's also a beautiful yellow colorant. And she is experimenting with what it's like for us to be surrounded by clouds of turmeric molecules. Um, some kind of metaphysical poultice, if you will. Why wouldn't it be better for us to have that next to our skin as opposed to some extruded polyester compound, right? And I love that. I love that experiment. And what she makes is really quite beautiful. Turmeric is so accessible that it will, it will dye your clothing exactly. whether you like it or not, you know, permanently. She to a very interesting point, which a couple of the, another American in the book, the, the subject of the last chapter, Sasha Dewar, uh, who's a professor at California College of the Arts, she also touches on this. In a way, it almost doesn't matter whether it's color fast or not. If you learn how to fix it, right? So if your turmeric wears out and you know what to do, to fix your garment, you get a whole nother four months of life out of that same garment because you have developed the rudimentary knowledge of what to do when the garment wears out. And I think that's progress, right? You and I have both lived an arc of life where the idea of mending what you own and prolonging its life has almost gone completely out of fashion. Well, it's really time that we bring that back. And maybe natural dyeing is one of the ways it seems florid and inspiring and romantic, right? As opposed to just mending. It's more than mending. This idea, I was first exposed to this idea on a trip to Benin, where I went to study uh, West African indigo uh, with a group called Heartware. And Heartware is uh, the subject of, the, of a chapter in the second revised edition of True Colors, which is coming out in paperback this fall from Thrum's books. And it was really great. I had this moment where the leader of the trip, so a guy from Paris, and at a certain point, we're making our way to the Indigo group to see them for a second time. And I see that he has these two massive bulging suitcases that are so heavy he can barely lift them. And I don't ask any questions, right? I'm just, I'm along for the ride. So we get to the dying group and all of a sudden he unzips these suitcases. They practically explode from the pressure that they've been under. It's all of his old sheets, old t-shirts, old shirts, his old boxer shorts, all of them with some suspicious, you know, like markings and he gave them all to the dying ladies, and when we went back for the third time a few days later, he had this gorgeous array of freshly dyed indigo everything. Indigo is so alkaline, as I'm sure you know, that it works its way through almost every single stain. So here he is with a whole fresh trousseau of everything that he could possibly need, and he told me that will get him through another 18 months. And when he gets home, he told me, if... 
certain things, you know, become a little worn and a little sad looking. He just throws them in the wash with the indigo things and he ends up with robin's egg blue and a little teal, depending on what the original color was. And he said, I can do this at home. I don't need any technical knowledge whatsoever. This can just happen at home in the laundry. And think about it. This gives you this thrill of changing your clothes as you go. It gives you the thrill of experimenting with a sense of renewal and it helps you consume less because you're not in such a hurry to get it out the door. I'm envisioning him just, just what it's like, you know, knitting with indigo dyed yarn. <laughs> I'm envisioning him now as a blue man <laughs> or like when you get a new pair yep. of jeans and the, and the indigo rubs off on you, you know, that question of fastness is really interesting because you know what what you're talking about with you you can fix it and there's sort of a transformation and renewal and not being so hidebound and then on the other hand you know it, it is very controversial because you know I know a lot of people who are very proud of being able to make their colors fast mm-hmm. it's just the word fast is so funny but um that that there's a certain yes. rigor um to having something that that will be consistent. And I love the idea of including everyone in this discussion of natural color. There's no bad place to be, but you just have to be there. So if you're at the beginning and you're throwing a tea towel into a vat of turmeric and you're watching the magic of what happens and the magic of how it goes away, right? And your first couple of times through the laundry and you feel inspired to go on, well, then you go on. And I love that. There's a place for everyone on this continuum of where we are now, which I think we could all agree is not acceptable from an environmental proposition and even from a poetic proposition. Uh, there's a place for everyone along that continuum from where we are to where we should be. Um, in the course of writing the book, um, I wrote about this group in the foothills of the Himalayas called Avani. And they're devoted entirely to sustainable color production, to natural color, to working within the villages around their facility to do beautifully inclusive work, cultural preservation. They're just amazing. And they noted that there's an invasive plant that is choking out the native growth on the forest floor. And the plant is called Ageratina adenophora. It first made its way around the world as a garden ornamental plant. So it originated in um, central Mexico. They discovered that this plant makes a beautiful yellow, and it can be manipulated with the addition of a little iron into a beautiful olive. It can be over-dyed with a little indigo to make a beautiful chartreuse. I mean, it really has the basis for a nice range of yellows, greens, and blue-greens. Really gorgeous. So they've set about systematically eradicating this invasive plant and turning it into dye stuff. So I'm doing this research, and I'm fascinated by botany in addition to what Avani is doing. And I take a walk in my backyard because you can't just sit and write all day long. And I realize this weed is also growing in my backyard. And Right? So I start to actually use the leaves in a contact dyeing technique that was taught to me ages ago by another woman who's in the book uh, called India Flint from Australia. And so all last fall... I am creating these beautiful, intricate, lacy leaf patterns in yellow on white paper. And that was all of my gift wrapping across the holiday season. Right? So this idea of wherever it is you are, taking what you have around you, using the knowledge that you have, and pushing yourself further toward where we should be, I think that's fantastic. All progress is progress. So I love the rigor, really, truly full admirer of the rigor. And I also love the beginning steps, too. That's how we'll get somewhere.
so speaking of the color blue, you know, I keep seeing this story in various places that um, not everyone can see the color blue and that not every language contains the color blue. And yet you've traveled all over the world and, and there are lots of places where people are familiar with the color blue. Have you heard that before? I have, I have. I have to give you a long answer, Anne. I'm going Please. to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> the notion of people not being able to see blue <clears throat> is a Victorian era um, concept. Prime Minister Gladstone was a huge fan of uh, classical Greek literature. And he spent a lot of time reading Homer, right? The Odyssey and the Iliad. And he was quite taken with the complete absence of words for blue, right? So in his mind, leaving smoky London, he could go to Greece and see nothing but blue, right? The sky, the ocean, that was the predominant color. So he wondered why in this great work of literature there was no word for blue. And he came to a very Victorian conclusion. Is that, oh, those, those folks were so archaic they could not see blue and therefore they did not have a word for it, Right. Because him being at the pinnacle of, of development as a Victorian man, of course, he could see what they could not see. And that, was, that explained everything. There's no genetic basis for that. There's no scientific basis for that. Of course, they could see blue. Naming color and using names for color is a value judgment. It's, it's a cultural artifact. And the Greeks didn't use the word for blue because they weren't worried about it. They had it. What they were worried about, they had plenty of words for dark and stormy. So a disturbance in the sky or a disturbance in the sea, that was of concern. They had words for that. They were much more concerned about human achievement. So they had lots of words for polish and shine, lots of word for metal. These status symbols, right, that, that they greatly valued in terms of armor and shields and spear tips and uh, glistening marble, right? Even the word marble comes from the Greek word marmaron, which is to shine, to glimmer. So it wasn't an absence of vision. It was, it was, they didn't need it. They didn't need to talk about what they had around them every single second, the blue sky and the, and the blue sea. Um, there are plenty of, there's plenty of evidence that, for example, the ancient Mesopotamians saw and valued blue. Do you remember the um, pictures that fascinated me as a kid of these white alabaster temple figurines that had these massive saucer-shaped blue eyes. Do you remember seeing those as a kid? Well, there's a whole series of Mesopotamian, Sumerian uh, sculptures, not very large, and everyone has these wide, lapis lazuli blue eyes. And it turns out that they weren't making these sculptures because they had saucer si plate-sized blue eyes. They probably had brown eyes, right, like you would suspect. They did it because these were temple statuettes and these wide blue eyes were symbols of the awe you would feel being in the presence of the divine. And I love that idea, right? That there's this awareness that you're looking at the sky, contemplating the infinite. And of course your eyes would expand and of course you'd feel broadly open and ready to receive that awe. And of course it was blue, right? Many of the gods live in, in the heavens, and why wouldn't it be blue? So I, I hold this notion of blue, it's my favorite color, I hold this notion of blue uh, pretty dear because I do find that it has something to do with that depth and that old sense of awe. And it has a, it has a little bit of a corollary in uh, the West African way of seeing blue. 
um, lomasa, lomasa divin, is the deepest uh, value of indigo in um, Yoruba culture. A lot of West African cultures value this dark, deep color. And it's considered a symbol of divinity because it is the color of the sky where God lives. It's the color of darkness from which we emerge and to which we return. Right? So there's sort of a corollary about that, the divinity of the color blue. If I can just totally bore you, there is one, there's a, another thing that I find very powerful about blue as well. In physics, when an object is coming towards you, there's a blue shift in the light, right? Because of its motion, the wavelength of the light that's reaching you shifts toward blue. And I have to say that this combination of awe of the divine and the notion that something is coming toward you, I feel that blue is kind of a color of the future. It's the color of the horizon. It's the color of what's about to come. And I, f I find it fascinating to think about it that way. Um, it, you know, it's so, we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, these colors and their meaning and their richness. And, and so I, I was sort of looking into, you have two books about color, one of which true colors is about natural color and the stories that made it. And the other book is, is something is, it's a Pantone book about the 20th century and color. And when we think of Pantone, obviously color has a lot of, you know, meanings to, to each individual person, but, Pantone is a way to objectively describe color. Yeah, to object to objectively reproduce color, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that the the book that you're referring to is called the uh, the Twentieth Century in Color, and I co-wrote that with a Pantone colleague whose name is Leatrice Eisman, and we traced uh, the use of color in popular culture across the twentieth century. Um, so we have uh, eight, nine, or ten palettes per decade, and it's a really interesting walk through. The past is far more colorful than you might assume. It's really a fascinating thing. Pantone is a way to reproduce color, right? And it's a way to reproduce color in textile dyes, in powder coat, in printing ink, in clear plastics and opaque plastics, right? So it's a system that's used by industry. And I know a lot of people in our textile corner of the universe you know, have a lot of questions about, oh, well, why don't they have a natural color system? Why, you know, these are all chemicals, this is not good, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, honestly, if we can continue to push this idea that we want poetic product, we want product made by people, we want product with a backstory, we want product with technique and excellence, eventually a natural color system will have to come into being, right? We'll need yeah. it. Yeah. And and the way that, um, you know, a really skilled natural dyer can can get a huge range of colors. And yet also one of the traits of natural colors is that typically they all kind of go together. Yeah, For the most true. part, they all. It's true. There's yeah. a certain affinity, right? There's a certain mm -hmm. affinity to them. Um, <clears throat> my friend Michelle Whipplinger, who, who left us recently, um, was really the first person to demand that I pay attention to natural color as a discipline. We met at some networking thing or other, and, you know, she found out that I was working at Saks and Home Furnishings, and she told me that she could deliver any Pantone color I could possibly imagine in natural dyes. And, you know, this was early on in my journey, and I thought, well, 
maybe you can, maybe you can't, I don't know. <laughs> and <laughs> I just loved Michelle so much. I still love her. She uh, really made her way through, right, the walls of voicemail and secretaries and assistants and security. And she showed up at my office one day with four cases of yarn hanks, silk, wool, ramy, and cotton. And darn it, if she didn't, if she wasn't able to uh, show me that every single color was possible, by combining natural dye stuffs, changing out the mordants, paying attention to the fiber preparation and the content of the fiber. Deeply impressive. And it really, really changed my life. That's why we're sitting here talking today about the book that I wrote, right? She really started me off this road. Yeah, it's impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, so just uh, tell me a little bit about what you do with the Santa Fe art, art market. Maybe I'm so interested because I have not yet managed to go myself and I'm a little afraid because I'm afraid I would, you know, need to get out, get, you know, turn my credit cards into <laughs> ice cubes before I went. But <laughs> Well, you know what, even if you freeze those credit cards in ice cubes before you go, the desert sun melts that ice pretty quick <laughs> and they'll be out and ready to go. The, um, yeah, for the, I've been on the board of the folk art market um, for what, 10, 11 years now and creative director, volunteer creative director for the last five. And it really, it's, it's a full-time job. It's a full-time volunteer job (laughs) that I do my best to do, you know, in the spaces that I, that I can uh, allow it to, to fill. But the, the folk art market is an annual event. Uh, Alas, you know, 2020 has been canceled, so it'll, it'll be back in 2021, but uh, 160 to 180 artists from 50, 52, 54 countries come uh, with their product, and you get a chance to meet all of the makers. You get a chance to ask questions about technique and motif and talent and history and tradition, uh, and you get a chance to, as you say, uh, put your credit rating at risk because <laughs> it is truly amazing. Every year I learn something and I, I really do love textiles. So most of my attention goes to the people who are making textiles. Every year I learn something, every year I bring something back home that I just treasure because of the person who made it, the way it looks, uh, the story that it tells, the rarity of what it is in this world, right? There are often things being made by the last dozen or so practitioners of that particular discipline. It's Wow, it's profound. It's really changed my life as well, right? To be able to meet all those people and have their voices and their words uh, in my head as I think about color and as I think about textiles. It's it's amazing. Everybody should go to this thing, I think, three times, right? The first time you're just overwhelmed by it all. And of course, you'll love it and you'll enjoy it. And the second time you have your bearings and you start to go deep into what it is that you're really reacting to. And then the third time, you're kind of at that graduate level, right, where you're going to spend time with six people and ask all the questions that you have to ask and really feel like you've, you've gotten it. It's, it's great. It's really good. So in a way, you know, in, in an event fashion and also in a between the, the covers fashion, both True Colors and the Folk Art Market bring these um, cultural traditions and textile traditions and craft traditions together in two very different parts of your work. Yeah, they do. They do. They overlap, right? Uh, Of the 26 chapters, I think there are seven that are um, about people who are uh, part of the folk art market family, right? So they've definitely cross-fertilized. 
Uh, and a lot of what I learned uh, doing research for the book helps me understand um, the time, the talent, the, the tradition that people are using you know, across the board. So once you kind of get a little bit of indigo history under your belt, you're better ready to receive the next person, right, who applies with an aspect of the indigo, uh, worldwide indigo tradition. Um, same with matter or lack dyes or kutch dyes or, you know, all of that stuff uh, really does infuse your understanding back and forth. At some point, at some point, you know, in my, in my sort of strange fantasy mind, I wonder how all of this came into being, you know. There's nothing necessarily obvious about how you learn how to transfer color from a botanical substance or a mineral or an insect into a fiber and make it stick. It's not really entirely obvious. So what, what genius first came up with, first came up with this, right? India Flint, I asked her this question when we were spending some time together in a workshop and she said, okay, here's what I have in my mind. You have a busy mom, you have a wet baby, and the wet baby gets put just at the edges of a burned out fire, so it's just warm enough, but not dangerous, and there might be some little scrap of an indigo leaf, an indigo-bearing plant leaf, right? 600 species of plants bear indigo. And somehow mom picks up the baby and puts it all together. That leaf, those ashes, that urine, and that's beautiful. Right? And without the that's beautiful part, none of this matters. And think of that, right? That puts our urge for beauty in the mix. It puts our innate um, ability to observe subtle differences. And it puts our will to achieve mastery all together. So it's pretty profound, right? It's pretty profound. It's at the base, I think, of who we are. Yeah. There's a reason we're not walking around wearing ceramic tiles, right? <laughs> <laughs> we're wearing textiles. We like them. Yeah.